Before we begin, I'd just like to remind you that this episode is also available as a video. So if you'd like to check out myself and Andy in all our uh, glory, then head over to youtube.com forward slash at Pottywood. Hello everybody and welcome once again to another edition of Poddywood Interviews. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and joining me as always is... Andrew Roger Carson, other co-host of the show, and welcome to Poddywood. Poddywood Interviews, to be precise. And mm -hmm. uh, we have a very, very special guest with us today. Uh, I felt that this was kind of a great comeback story here that we really wanted to feature this director on the show. So you will know him as a writer. You'll know him as a director. You'll know him as a successful producer. Uh, he's also an author as well. He's done a number of books. Uh, I think I can say undefeated raging ball boxing champion as well. Could easily fit into that. He joins us all the way from Germany. It has to be Uwe Ball. Uwe, how are you? Hi, hi. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm one hour ahead of you, so uh, here the sun yeah. slowly goes down. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, it's, uh, it's going down slowly over here, and we're not used to having the curtains closed and there being daylight behind it. It's usually the middle of the night that we do these interviews, but thank you so very much for joining us. Um, so how are you at the moment? No, I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh, I shot a film in New York uh, recently in March, and since April, I'm I'm back here by Frankfurt in Germany, and uh, we focus on the post production of the film and looking out for packaging other projects or moving forward. Yeah, so for five and a half years, I didn't did films uh, in a way, and uh, so I'm I'm eager uh, to come back and do a few more. Well, definitely, this is something that we wanted to kind of start off with because. Uh, obviously, it was your last movie was uh, Rampage President Down, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you kind of took this retirement, and it has been felt. <laughs> Everyone that I've kind of spoken to say, oh, Uvi Ball's back making a movie. That's actually kind of cool. So now you are back. You turn to directing with a movie, I believe, called First Shift. Yes. So can you tell us about it? Yeah. So uh, it's uh, uh, it shot mostly in Brooklyn. Uh, Queens uh, uh, in New York, and it's basically uh, showing the first shift to uh, police officers, female uh, Kristen Renton, who we know from like Sons of Anarchy and some shows like this, and Gino Pizzi, uh, who was also in a lot of uh, TV shows, uh, for example, with Jennifer Lopez in Shades of Blue, he, he was the co-lead. And uh, so they are the two cops and they have to work the first shift together uh, what he doesn't want because he is normally working alone and uh, we follow them through that day and so it's kind of a road movie because they're in the car and they're moving from case to case and situation to situation um, and it goes from it has a lot of humor it, is, it has sad scenes and it has very violent scenes um, and when the day is over they basically are a team you know, so they, they grow mm -hmm. together during that day. 
and I felt like it's kind of a, a impossible to to uh, to not shoot in New York and fake it somewhere, you know. So a lot of films they shoot in Toronto or something, and but it's impossible if you're basically driving around in the city, people would recognize it too fast. So we had to shoot in New York. What is a, a kind of uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to say nightmare, but it's not easy in New York. Everything is, there's so many people, so many cars, so much traffic. And uh, uh, it's it, the handling of the film was not easy. But um, it was a lot of fun to do this. And we got very good, like, side actors uh, on their day jobs, basically, because they all live there. And then you have, like, whatever, Gary Pastore, he was in, like, 10... Scorsese films, uh, a mafia guy, he plays a mafia guy in the film. And it's easier, of course, to get these people when you say, we pick you up in the morning, you have a shoot day, and then we bring you back. It's way cheaper as to fly them to Vancouver because then it's like uh, everything adds on and they want more money. So I got Daniel uh, Soli also. He was in The Deuce with uh, James Franco. He was the main bad guy in the show, like the, also a mafia guy. Um, he was also in House of Cards and other stuff. James McMiniman from uh, Orange is the New Black. Um, and so on. So I think all the little parts, we have very good actors doing it. And, and actors you know from other shows. Um, and I don't know how the film turns out. So I'm waiting for the rough cut right now. So because you get kind of like uh, lost uh, in, in a way when you shoot the film. You don't know what scene is really strong what scene is maybe not so strong. And uh, I was lucky I got Ethan Manikis as the, the editor. And he did like From Dust Till Down, Sin City, um, Mashidi. So he did a lot of Robert Rodriguez films, very experienced guy. And uh, he approached me that he wants to work with me. So now he had a, a good possibility for, for this film. And I hope he, he makes it in the editing even better as, as what we as what we shot, Brad. Yeah. Well, you you do tend to attract um, a lot of surprising talent. Um, I watched Postal for the first time this week, and uh, for about the first half hour, I was there going, "Oh, oh, it's J.K. Simmons. Oh, it's um, it's uh, uh, this guy. Oh, it's that guy." And it's it's amazing that you're able to get all these people together. Now, did they come to you, or do you go to them? Because I've heard mixed stories. No, but in Postal, it was we did. Uh, it was basically the only film what I did was an open casting call in LA, and we worked with a Mormon bowling casting, and they basically put that thing out there that you can come and audition for, for Postal. I mean, J.K. Simmons didn't come for audition, but people with, like Dave Foley, Vern Troyer, all that people uh, signaled that they are open for an offer. And so mm -hmm. that is why we made an offer. Uh, I was not thinking that J.K. Simmons would do a small part like this, to be honest, right? So, But we did it, and uh, they all took it. I think at that point, they... It was a different time, right? It's almost 14 years ago, a postal. Yeah. And I think the people were out there. They wanted the political incorrectness. They wanted this uh, taboo, uh, destroying kind of uh, film. And I mean, in today's time, I think nobody would apply anymore. If you would postal, if you would do the casting call, everybody would say like, I'm out. 
because I want to keep working <laughs> after after the film. And uh, uh, so, um, but at this time there were different times, and they enjoyed it that Postal went so far uh, away from the normal um, comedies, you know. So I, I see Postal a little like Hangover in the in the in the way of uh, dirtiness. Like dirty humor, mm. I, I, I think Hangover something's uh, made about Mary, but it's but it's also in that tradition of uh, action comedy stuff, like what we know from Naked Gun, the airplane films, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie. So if you go mm. a little farer back, uh, where a lot of comedy was was physically, and that is what we what we did there. I love films like this. I love Airplane and Naked Gun, and and so and and I miss films like this. They are like the comedy changed, I think, the most from all the genres over the last uh, 15, 20 years. Now it's all romantic comedies or this kind of sitcom, political correct, you know, political incorrect sitcom are mostly animation, like South Park, Family Guy, Rick and Morty. And so they go far, way far as the, the the, the, the real actors the sitcoms they're all kind of harmless yeah we had the uh, david zucker on many many years ago uh many many years many episodes ago i should say <laughs> and uh he basically echoed the same thing you can't make comedies like this anymore because people are too worried about offending people or pushing the envelope too far and uh yes but I think the audience would be there. You know what the problem would be? is like if you do a Postal 2 or you do a, a real comedy like Airplane or Naked Gun, I think the audience would be there, but you don't get any support of the press, of the TV, mm. like the talk shows that would not invite you, they would not put uh, uh, the trailer up, uh, the theatrical owners, they would be like, uh, no, we don't want to play it. You know, so, but if you just put it up on like, whatever a pay platform like on amazon for 9.99 and if you if you would like uh, advertise it i think people would be very surprised how many people would pay that uh, to watch Mm -hmm. this uh, because it's not so much so much there and um i'm um i think netflix are almost the only ones who uh, push the envelope from time to time yeah you that's, know, that's actually a good stand-ups point. and and some mm. other stuff where they where I think everybody else, all the other streamers, they have no problem with violence. They don't have problems with horror or whatever. They they, they do all the genres, but they don't do uh, like real harsh satire stuff. They're not interested. Yeah. In. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, Uwe, and looking through um, your diverse career going back. Uh, way before you started on the stuff like the video game conversions, your early works were kind of more celebrated. So you had movies like uh, Bar Shell, uh, Amoklauf, Heart of America. Ron Howard apparently was, you know, really praising of Heart of America as well. Mm-hmm. And were your sensibilities different then? And was the kind of going into the video games, was this a kind of way of, you know, you wanted to break into Hollywood at the time? Yeah, no, I, I would say before, even with like my first U.S. films like Sanctimony, Blackwoods and, and Heart of America, I, uh, I tried to tell the stories I thought they were interesting. And yeah. a lot of them, I had the idea for the story or I wrote the treatment and uh, like Sanctimony, 
Blackwoods and Heart of America were all basically my ideas, but then American writers wrote the scripts because of my English uh, doesn't really allow me to write in English a full-on uh, script. And then the, the Heart of America film uh, basically didn't make any money, like it lost a lot of money, uh, even with some good reviews and everything, it didn't help. And then came House of the Dead along, basically on my desk, you know, it was like, you're interested in video game films, zombie films. I said, yeah, zombie films, I'm uh, I'm in. Yeah, so I, I like the Romero ones and so on. I felt like to do a zombie film would be actually interesting. But uh, I, House of the Dead, I knew only from the arcades, you know, from like just shooting, yeah. shooting, shooting. So I asked like, what, what should happen in that film? You know, and they said, yeah, basically <laughs> people have to shoot zombies and have to have a, a life dangerous situation. And they had the script written already, had the rights from Sega. And that is why I did House of the Dead, because it was like an opportunity uh, to raise money. It was, I recognized it's way easier to raise money for this kind of films as you want to make a drama about school violence. And mm -hmm. uh, so Lionsgate uh, Artisan at that point picked it up. And um, that was the reason, basically, that I continued after with it. Because with I'm not like Wim vendors, you know, who get like subsidies and <laughs> whatever. The German film industry always uh, hated me in a way. I, ne I never made films they wanted because they normally want only drama in Germany or romantic comedy uh, or Second World War dramas. And um, I'm more like an American-driven filmmaker. Uh, so I went where the money was. Right. I felt like, OK, yeah. you know what, if I can get bigger money, make bigger films with bigger stars, why I shouldn't do this? Um, you know, it was not that I had a lot of other opportunities. And uh, so that is how it came then to this kind of avalanche of five, six, seven video ba uh, game based films. Um, and with this came the negative reviews. On the yeah. one hand, you had more financial success, but on the other hand, you had you had uh, uh, very bad reviews, and uh, that never changed. You know, it also never changed when I started making other films again. Uh, they were not watching them, or they were to totally ignoring them, or bashing them without watching them. So that was the the basically the spell or the the, the negative thing um, as a result. Of that, you can say a five-year period where I made video game film after video game film after video game film. Yeah. Well, Steve here is, uh, I guess you could call him the video game guy out of the two of us. Yes. So, whereas I'm the film connoisseur, he is the video game connoisseur. So yes. I know we're coming into this one. Obviously, he loves his video games. So uh, if you want to take all of your uh, frustration out on Steve, that's fine. <laughs> No, oh, yeah. no, 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 Mr. Uh, definitely not, Mr. Balsa. Um, uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, when you were talking about House of the Dead there, I mean, there's been, like you say, there was a lot of negative press that came with that movie. Um, and I remember I saw it years and years and years ago, and uh, I wasn't its biggest fan, I'm not going to lie. But what I will say is, thinking about the House of the Dead games, well, the actual gameplay itself was a lot of fun. Yeah. The cutscenes, the voice acting, the characters, they were 
absolute Terrible. garbage <laughs> in the game. So yeah. at least at least in the film you had an actual human being that was attempting to emote as opposed to what the hell was going on with the the voice actors that they obviously hired in from Sega of America to dub the uh, the titles when they came out. Um well, getting back to the films though after that came out what was the kind of uh comeback from the likes of Sega? to the, no, the reception Sega, of the film. No, Sega came to set, right? And they are, uh, the Sega president, US, Peter Moore, he really liked it. There were some Japanese guys there. They were even zombies in the film, like as extras that came in. And um, they they never said a negative thing about the about the film. And the the thing is like this, like I'm a film buff like you, right? So it's, it's this kind of like, I know that I didn't make masterpieces. I know this, right? So, but it was also uh, not the point. The, the, you know, the point was for me to bring something on screen what is kind of, in regards of House of the Dead, a very violent, gory fun. Like, <laughs> when you play yeah. the game, when you play the game, it's fun, right? So, and I felt like uh, you cannot make like a film like 28 Days Later, this kind of zombie film out of House of the Dead. You need to do it more campy. And you, mm. you, yeah. so that is what I, what I tried. Also, like I got totally bashed putting video game scenes in the film or having this kind of the matrix set up. And, and we like, we had like this round table where the camera moved around 360, like all stuff, you know, from the game, uh, situation, also, you know, like when when the, when you're dead in House of the Dead, you stand there mm-hmm. and the camera rolls around you. So exactly, I did all that set in the film. But when I do it, then I'm a piece of shit, you know. So and that is was kind of like uh, I felt a little they overreact to me in a way, you know. So uh, they I, I I I felt overall. And then when we go further with How Alone in the Dark and then Blood Rain and then Dungeon Siege. I felt the movies progressed. They got better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think... I think Alone in the Dark was the worst video game-based film I did, but not necessarily because of... Uh, I mean, we, Tara Reid was wrong. The story was not, like, really working. And... Uh, but I felt Blood Rain was way better. You know, yes. I think Blood yeah. Rain is maybe the video game-based film with the most film stars... Uh, from all the video game based uh, films and it has this kind of roughness what I wanted like Romania the old like uh, Roman Polanski like dances with vampires I wanted to bring the real castles in and not making a total fake film like Van Helsing uh, or this kind of films they're all shot in front of green screen we really went in Romania in the forest and uh, I felt that was very uh, uh, the reviews of Blood Rain are the same as House of the Dead or Alone in the Dark. And there, then I got very aggressive against the reviewers too. And I said, look guys, you're not taking film series because you need to watch every single film different. And you cannot just say because from Overball, uh, you basically do copy and paste. Blood Rain is a totally different film as House of the Dead. And yeah. I got basically killed for every single film in the same way. And that I still think that is it's not fair, especially when you see what other video game based films came out, where you feel like <laughs> so yeah. 
was now a masterpiece. This gets on IMDb 6.5 points, uh, and I get like 1.8 points. But are you serious? Like, look at the look at the films. I mean, there were various video game based films. Uh, they they were done with enormous amount of money and felt totally like Prince of Persia, World of Warcraft. Mm. Were that masterpieces? Mm. I I I think Dungeon Siege is a better film as this films. So I mean, well, in mentioning uh, in House of the Dead, uh, I think uh, obviously uh, it had kind of an effect on you to kind of get all this negative press like straight off the bat. Um, f for a video game movie, basically, which to be honest, there weren't a lot of great video game movies. No, back and, then anyway. and they've they've only really started being any good over yeah. about the last two to three years, really. There was uh, a great retort here where you were kind of self admitting on uh, the House of the Dead front when you released the director's cut, and I believe the only scene that was new in House of the Dead director's cut was you strapped to a chair being forced to watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Yeah, we, we, did the, we did also yeah. the House of the Dead funny version, you know, that's also existing, was an, as a, an extra uh, release where we did, because we did so many outtakes, we just did the whole funny version of it because it was completely absurd. And, uh, I mean, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was kind of fun to shoot the film. I have to say, because I love action scenes, you know, and we had so much shooting and explosions, whatever. It was just a, a great time to shoot the to shoot the film. And uh, but I think we were all aware. Like, look, Jürgen Prochno from Das Boot plays the boat captain. Uh, Clint Howard uh, played his his uh, boatsman there, and you know, like it, it was never meant to be a serious zombie movie. And yeah. uh, but they don't saw saw it this way, right? I I don't know. I don't know what they were expecting. Um, yeah. And but look, in the very end, I think they sold in America alone two million DVDs of it. There is another thing, you know, when you when when mm. you're not dig into yeah. the film industry, then everything is the box office. And a lot of people writing for like the big newspapers, they're acting like the box office is the only measurement if a film is a success. And it's so wrong, you know, because it's so wrong because half of it goes to the exhibitors and then uh, how much money studios spend to release films or to uh, advertise films is just insane. And a lot of times they're just like, oh, that movie made 80 million box office. Yeah, but it was $250 million to do it. Or it was a hundred million in advertising spend, and on House of the Dead for like a seven million dollar film, it did eleven million dollar box office in the U.S. But if you sell two million DVDs, that are over that were almost twenty million in DVD sales, and in U.S. only plus all the other countries. So financially, the film was a hit, depending yeah. on the production costs. And Lionsgate only spent like 10 million to release it, so it was like 18 million total costs. So, uh, and and for this, they made enormous amounts of money uh, with it because then they did pay TV and and all that mm. stuff came additional. I, I think probably the most harshest came was around um, Alone in the Dark, and as you said, you, you admit that this wasn't your finest hour movie, but th this was kind of the high peak following House of yeah. the Dead. Uh, obviously, you have Christian Slater, uh, Tara Reid, who you mentioned wasn't 
uh, fit for the role, really, and, and it's hard to argue, really, because I have seen the movie. Uh, but I know that after uh, Alone in the Dark uh, was released, um, you kind of struggled a little bit to get work following uh, the disastrous uh, reception yeah. of that movie, right? Yes, but that is where uh, I needed Blood Rain to have a lot of stars. Yeah. I think so. Blood Rain basically got financed because I had so many actors doing it. Uh, to my big surprise, to be honest, it was like Ben Kingsley and so on. It's uh, uh, he didn't have to do the film, but uh, he felt why not? It's a vampire film. I played like the the, the top vampire, and then Michelle Rodriguez, Christina Loken, Geraldine Chaplin, Billy Zane, Meat Loaf, uh, Matt Davis. Um, there were so Michael Paré. There were so many uh, parts uh, with famous actors that pulled the trigger. Mm, because yeah. that was like, wow, that, that, uh, we should do this. So that was the thing, right? So, but uh, no, Alone in the Dark was, was the hardest hit I, I got because it was not successful in the movie theaters. Uh, very successful again on DVD, but that is with video game based films always. Yeah, it is the, the one of the, the the biggest tools with this kind of films was DVD rental and and sales and Blu-ray, and that is one of the reasons I think now uh, after Blockbuster went down and the DVD stores went down, it's it's a different kind of game now. Like now you cannot do this, what I did at that time, because video could really turn the. the a film around completely financially because it was in the end more uh, more way cheaper to release of course as a theatrical release and uh, the profits were way higher as in the movie theaters so uh, but uh, now it's impossible now it's all about the streamers and they will say alone in the dark is crap we give you a hundred thousand I mean, that, that, yeah. that would be, yeah, but but that would be the reality, right? So, mm. uh, uh, and and that is also the reason I'm not really interested anymore in making other video game based films um, because I don't see there a big possible upside. Um, it's it's more like it, only if a streamer says, "Look, I will pay the whole thing uh, because we want it." But if you would just shoot it and, and you hope you get a lot of money for it, I think it's a, a it will be a mistake. Yeah, well, Blood Rain was actually a step up, uh, especially to Alone in the Dark. Uh, but I understand there was, I think this is kind of where the, the reputation started kind of getting around. I understand that the drop in theater chains, Yeah, if, I think in the US, you dropped from 2,500 that was planned to around 1,600 screens. Now, was that just the negative press up front? Or was it uh, no. test screenings? No, I think it was the distributor. Because, uh, so Universal had the film, but they didn't release it. And then they used an independent distributor, uh, Romar Entertainment, to uh, uh, release it. And they couldn't get the exhibitors. They basically didn't have the power of a, of a major. And so they manufactured 2,500 prints and then when the results from the first weekend came in, I got the. I looked at it. I said, "But is, is there is only eleven hundred screens? So where is the other fifteen hundred screens? What what happens there?" And then it turned out they never played the film, but so they overproduced prints. 
and that that was a waste of one and a half two million dollars right so uh, that that prints never get played um yeah and so that was a very bad experience um and uh yeah in other countries it was different right so you had we had like yeah. a lot of independent distributors in for in in in, in uh, different countries and they did a better job so there were some countries like Spain, Japan, where, where Blood Rain uh, was successful or in the name of the king later, like the Dungeon Siege film, was in Germany very successful with 20th Century Fox, uh, in the US also not successful. Uh, um, similar situation as with Blood Rain. And, um, but in England, in, uh, uh, also in Spain and so on, it ran a few weeks uh, kind of good, basically, because it was a Jason Statham film. People yeah. wanted wanted to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to give a quick shout out while we're here to Natasha Malty, who starred as Blood Rain in uh, parts <laughs> yeah. two and three. Hello, hope you're doing well. Yeah, <laughs> she will be soon a director, and then uh, she can replace yes. me in House of the Dead part three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, in in speaking of uh, Dungeon Siege, in the name of the King, um, I mean this was. This had a major cast, you know, as well as Jason mm -hmm. Statham. You had Burt Reynolds. Uh, help me out, Steve. Who are the other actors? Wait, you just got yeah, Ron Perlman. <laughs> Ron Perlman. John Reese Davis. Also, Christiana Loken again. Uh, Lily Zubieski. Brian White. Uh, yeah, also great cast. Uh, I was surprised. I have to say. You know why I was so surprised to get that cast? Because of the bad reviews from my past. And to my big surprise, all the agents gave a shit. I mean, it was really strange, but they, but they, uh, they liked the concept, they liked the script. They, they felt like, why not? Jason Stessam didn't want it to play the part. Uh, I had him on the phone and he said, oh, I hate this kind of fantasy films, whatever. I said, yeah, it's true. And when I see your films, they're all like gangster films, Guy Ritchie, whatever. And I, I love them. But yeah. why not doing something different one time? Like, you know, like, I mean, what, 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 what can happen, you know? And then I think the manager wanted that he's doing it, it's especially for that reason, to feel like, he has a little more range. He can do a little different things too. And uh, uh, then he did it. Um, and I think he did a great job. I came, uh, uh, I, I loved working with him. Uh, and he was so easygoing on set. Uh, very dry humor, what I like too. And uh, so he and Claire Folani, uh, they were like perfect. But uh, really both, uh, I had a lot of fun with on the show, Ron Perman. Uh, John Rhys Davis, very easy to work with. Burt Reynolds, uh, yeah, he was older at that point already. And uh, he's just a legend, right? I mean, he was a legend. Uh, I loved working with him, but he was complicated. You know, it's not yeah. like you can just like tell him, do whatever you do, go on the horse and you do this, whatever. It was physically hard on him with the armor on and stuff like this. And uh, we had a scene where he passed out and the stunt guy catched him basically falling down from a, a platform. And, uh, but as a, as a human being, when I talked alone with him, he was, he was super, super nice. Uh, 
but it was kind of reserved too to everybody and yeah. Uh, yeah and Ray Liotta I mean at two films with Ray Liotta I had uh, suddenly uh, where he played a cop and it was so easy and he was so good to work with and so easy and but in the name of the king was he was complicated too he had, he had a lot of issues and uh, you feel he felt wrong in a film like this right you know, and uh, he didn't, in a way, enjoyed it as like, I think Jason Stetson, when he accepted it, he felt, okay, I'm doing now a film, like a fantasy kind of uh, night film, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, and he enjoyed it. And, and Ray Liotta, I think he didn't enjoy it too much. And so he was a little, like, uh, tough to make happy on set. Also for the other actors, <laughs> you know, they always tried like, Ray, it's not so bad how you think, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> you have worked with some fantastic actors. That's that's without question. But you also seem to be working with the same actors again and again. And going back very briefly to Natasha, when we had her on, she was singing your praises to the hilt saying that you're an absolute joy to work with. And, you know, you've got people like uh, Brendan Fletcher and Michael Parry, like you said earlier, coming back again and again and again to be in your films. So what do you think is the is the secret of this? Was it just like a great comradeship or, or do you just find working with these kind of actors just so easy? Yeah, I mean, it's easier you work with people you work with before. You know, they know then already what will happen or what, what's coming up. And I think, in general, I think actors uh, like me because I don't try to act in front of them. You know, I'm not an, an, uh, a guy who's now acting the part and say, you have to do it this way or whatever because I know I'm a bad actor. And, you know, and uh, so I let them do their stuff and um, gives them also the trust they can try. You know, like they, yeah. I want always like how you would play the scene, just play the scene how you want to play the scene. And then I maybe correct something. Then I, then I maybe say, I see it a little different. Uh, but let's shoot one version for you. And then we do another one or two for me. You know, so that, that I think I'm very uh, um, yeah, helping to the actors and not disturbing them or uh, stressing them out. So, uh, yeah. And then with Brendan, with Brendan Fletcher, he was in five, six films, Michael Perry, over 10, 12 films, mm. Clint Howard, over 10, 12 films, uh, Will Sanderson, who's not acting anymore, was in Seed and In the Name of the King, In Blood Rain, very good friend of mine too. But they are mostly also like friends, right? Natasha Malton, yeah. because she lived also in Vancouver. It was an easy, uh, you know, we, we uh, had private uh, uh, contact uh, together. She came to my restaurant, what I had. You know, stuff like this. It's it's easier. Brendan Fletcher is also from Vancouver. So you keep some people in Vancouver where uh, you have an ongoing relationship to. And then you have people like Michael Pere who you know they will deliver. Mm -hmm. You know, so they, they, whatever, we need a New York cop, I am Michael Pere or whatever. You know, like <laughs> it, it's just, it will work. Uh, or you need a strange guy, hire Clint uh, Howard. So, uh, and, uh, yeah, but of course, it's like there are people where you are not eager to work with again, you know, where you have like, uh, oh, I'm not doing that to me anymore. Uh, but most of the people I work with, I would work with right away uh, again, I, I have to say. Yeah. Well, 
here's a little section that I like to call rumor control. Here are the facts. Steve, you can put an animation on that one later yeah. if you want. No, I'm okay. not. <laughs> Regarding Dungeon Siege. Now, I have three internet rumors that I'm going to ask you if these are true in regards to Dungeon Siege. Mm -hmm. So the first one, according to Burt Reynolds, the director Kevin Smith came to your set and stole Krispy Kreme donuts. True or false? False. Well, that's a false one. I, no, because I don't. I don't remember that he came to set. I didn't saw it. But I tell you a thing. What actually happened? There was we were shooting something, and there came that producers Emmett Fuller, the uh, Emmett and uh, oh, yes. Fuller, like they, they they did so many shit films with a lot of big stars basically, and they came to the set, and they were sitting behind me on the video village, and I was like, "What the fuck you want here?" Basically, but I think maybe they came to approach Jason Stessam for a film. That yeah. was my gut feeling, but they were not really nice. So I told them to get the fuck off my set <laughs> or they <laughs> getting a personal problem with me. And then they, they left the set. So that is a true story about, uh, uh, <laughs> about in the name of the king. So, yeah. okay, okay. Another one. Yeah. Rumor number two, the first public showing for Dungeon Siege in the Name of the King was done in LA only eight hours after the movie was completed and you had to fly straight from Vancouver to LA to deliver it. True or false? No, it's false. It's false. But it's half false because it was not eight hours, whatever. No, but it was uh, for Sony. They were interested right. to buy the film. And we didn't finish it. And uh, Peter Schlessel at that point was the Sony uh, chef uh, and, and acquisition chef. And he said, if I don't watch it now, I will never watch it. So right. he put the pressure on us. And then we uh, showed him an unfinished, uh, uncolor corrected film. The sound was temp. And Sony didn't bought the film. And the lesson for me was, you cannot do this. You know, the, like, the thing is like, A, I should told him like, okay, then too bad, but I cannot show you like a film what is not finished because then you say that film doesn't look so good. You know, I mean, and, and, but for me, it was the pressure was on and I wanted that you see the film. And uh, so never, the lesson was really like, never show the normal people. And uh, in a way, a studio head is a normal person because he never makes films, you know, and uh, he expects the, the screen goes on and everything is perfect. And if you cannot deliver this, don't show the film. That was the lesson I learned that day. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And third and finally, for rumor control, you originally wanted to cast Kevin Costner, who could not do the movie because he was tied up. But Kevin Costner offered you the directing gig on Mr. Brooks. True or false? That is almost true also so uh, kevin costner uh, was in the run before jason stesson and there were two things they uh didn't work out the first one was he wanted a private jet coming to vancouver to talk to me and i told him uh, no <laughs> yeah it's like, like 35 000 bucks i'm flying down to wherever you are 
you know, for like 400 bucks and uh, meet you in LA or wherever it was. It was in California somewhere. I said, it's insane, you know, it's insane to, to spend so much money on a private jet. That was a real downer for him. I don't know what was in him. But then he said, why not using your money and we shoot together the film Mr. Brooks. I really want to do the film. And that was basically, so it's kind of true what you said, right? He wanted to switch the money. And I said, no, I raised all that money for In the Name of the King. I cannot change the film uh, to a kind of, uh, I liked actually Mr. Brooks when I watched yeah. it later. I think it's a good film, right? But of course, you cannot, it's where he's a serial murder kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, he plays a oh double. that one, yes. Yeah. You know, so, but I mean, I, I just told him that it's completely impossible for me. I cannot change all the contracts done for, a, in the name of the king, it's a, a Microsoft uh, game. Uh, that was just impossible. And that was why we moved on then. You know, he said like, ah, oh, I'm not doing it. And I said, yeah, and we also, we can't, we just cannot do whatever we want. And then we were in a way lucky uh, because I think in the end, Jason Stessem, uh, was even a better choice. Yeah, and certainly did well for Jason Statham for like his growing career as well, to the point where he is now. So it was a good stepping stone for him into action roles. Um, now, apparently, there are internet rumors out there that you approached to do movie versions of uh, Metal Gear Solid and Warcraft as well. Yeah, but I mean, I, I on on the on the the peak of making video game based films. There were obvious uh, the top properties, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, and uh, of course, I I was interested. I went in contact to them. Then they all said, "No, not with you." What well, I mean, the reputation for me in the video game industry was then also done because they, in a way, followed the reviews they were reading online. Yeah. I'm just but imagining also... a your version of Metal Gear Solid in my head. And it looks brilliant. <laughs> it really does. I can picture it now. And it just looks fantastic. Yeah, but but on the plus side, I mean, you got the rights to make Far Cry before the game was even completed. Yeah. Yeah, that was clever. So yeah. uh, because uh, the Yearly brothers, that's three Turkish brothers, right? So they, uh, they did Far Cry and they're from Frankfurt. And I'm living right here, right? So it's this kind of day. I met them personally, and they said, "If you want to do the film, uh, let's do a deal." And I was lucky because uh, one year later, uh, you could make a zero behind the number we agreed on. Uh, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, so um, and that's that is why Ubisoft hates me till today. When I shot the film, I went in contact to Ubisoft and said, "Look." Uh, you have in Toronto a CGI a company. They, you can do the CGI on the film if you want. No, we don't have anything to do with the film. And I said, yeah, but look, that is just stupid because that CGI company from Ubisoft is doing film CGI. It has nothing to do with video games. So why you don't want the money? Why you don't want to join forces and you will work together to make the best Far Cry film possible? You know, no. They, they they totally bluffed me off, and uh, that was it. Yeah, I mean, also, I think what is interesting, I had a I had a podcast. I don't know who who was it, but uh, they were like very much video game podcast, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, about video games, and 
now basically a lot of people changed a little over time their opinion about the films they're not so hard against the films anymore because there was so much crap in between that they say in retrospect yeah. if your films were way better as we thought at that point uh, <laughs> compared well what what came after and they said like uh watching rampage later this other films they felt like if I would have like Rampage 1, basically at that time when I did Alone in the Dark, let's say Alone in the Dark and then not Blood Rain would came, instead like Rampage would came, uh, they think the whole world would turn upside down. And everybody would say, wow, it's not based on a video game, but that is like a video game film. And, mm. and, uh, and you know, and then they said in the, in the talk also, like, they cannot imagine after watching Postal, after watching Rampage, that somebody else as me could do Grand Theft Auto. You oh, know, my God, yeah, that you know? is amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and uh, because they said it's the perfect combination out of this kind of Postal humor with the violence of, of, of Rampage. You know, and I said, yeah, tell this to the guys from Grand Theft Auto. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that makes me happy. You know, that in retrospect, yeah. some people, they follow my career in a way. And then they, uh, you know, they, and they changed their, their initial opinion because they said, I hated you for Alone in the Dark and House of the Dead. But later you did stuff we actually think was really good. So, uh, and that is what I hope now with my comeback with the film or whatever that the people see that also as a filmmaker, you get older, you develop mm -hmm. and you tell stories maybe different. And uh, I think that that would be my, my wish for the next chapter of uh, my, my film uh, making. Yeah. Because I mean, when uh, Postal came out, which is obviously like the next one and forgive me if I'm wrong, was Postal based on a game as well? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Okay. Mostly um, based on Postal 2. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Postal was uh, better received. I remember when it came out, and I was in film school at the time when that movie came out, and they used to hold screenings of it. So the students would hold a screening of Postal. And I'll, I'll name Alphonse Zimmerman, fellow German, who was a huge fan of your movies, and it would show him the law. And he showed us uh, Postal one night. And I understand you were kind of getting resistance from the talent agents in regard to casting around this time, which is why you, you probably held the open call and you get people like JK Simmons coming on board. Uh, so were, were you kind of feeling that pressure of like, oh, you know, I'm not going to get, you know, the, these A-list stars like Statham, et cetera, again, you know, and, and were you more invested in discovering new talent? Yeah, both, right? So you'd still try to get the best possible names. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there were people that were like, uh, no, you cannot do this. It's like bad for your reputation whatsoever, you know, and uh, but, but that is how it goes. I, I mean, a lot of actors are just doing what the agents say and they're yeah. not like really uh, making their own decisions. And I think also that I think actually that got worse. Maybe the last ten, last ten years, it got even worse. I think also that a lot of actors don't get offers uh, from the agent presented. 
You know, you make yeah. an offer mm -hmm. and they just don't give them the script. They throw this thing in the garbage and act like there was nothing for you. So uh, that that is the thing where um, where I, where I would be as an actor, I would be very mad, right? So when you see like Adam Driver, for example, he has no manager and no ad, uh, agent. He has only an attorney, and I think he was so mad about like that people whatever offered him or offered him something, and then he found out he never got the offer, and then he got yeah. so mad, he fired everybody. Uh, and I totally understand that. That is, it's it's ridiculous as as an agent. You're not the teacher or parent of an actor, and you have to to put an offer uh, forward, right? You can say I wouldn't do it, you know, I hate that director or whatever. You can say this, but at the same time, you cannot seriously hide it. Mm. And that is ridiculous, and it's like basically telling your own client. You're a child. You cannot decide for yourself. I do it all for you. It, I think it's it's ridiculous. And but I think that a lot of uh, agents uh, now nowadays uh, totally do that. Yeah. If it was my agent that did that, I would just be so pissed. But then again, I haven't got an agent at the moment. So. So Steve's available for work. He's a really good actor as well. I will say. I've used I've used him in films so many times now. Go on, Juve. Yeah. Give my job. Um, okay. Well, around this time... You're not having 10%. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be talking <laughs> the critics had just kind of fallen into this uh, routine now of uh, basically annihilating you online and in reviews before your movie had even come out. And this was the time where, and I'm sure you, you've spoken about this a hundred times, and I'm sorry to bring it up again, this is where the raging ball comes out. So as we understand it, you took uh, a challenge out to box your five harshest critics <laughs> yes. in an actual boxing match. And not only did they show up, you actually won every single fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, w I wouldn't did the, the thing if I, I boxed when I was young. So I, for me, it was clear, basically, let's say they're unexperienced fighters, I can survive, you know, so it was this kind of like, uh, it was clear for me, I go in kind of a risk because, you know, uh, even beating up four people in a row is very exhausting. So, you know, it was this kind of, uh, um, and I didn't know before they came to Vancouver who they were actually looking. It was not like a... a you know, you, you have Jeff Schneider from Variety or Chris Alexander from Fangoria. So these people, but I didn't ask them, how tall are you? How heavy you are? No Come as you are. Yeah, it was like the old days when UFC started, where you had like the, the little Royce Garcia judo guy against a, a sumo wrestler or something. So I didn't know what, what, what will happen. Uh, but it was true. It was because of the Blood Rain reviews. I was so mad. That I said, you know what, I mean, uh, if you want to destroy me, then try it in the ring. So it was really like this kind of like, I want revenge. I want to hit their people because they are so uh, unfair and backstabbing, um, you know. And of course, in retrospective, you know it all better, right? So the, the thing is like now, uh, 
I, I also never had an agent, a manager, a PR agency. It was just always unfiltered me directly communication in communication with everybody. And that got used, you know, that, that I think was this kind of like, I mean, I'm sure you, me and, and, and Steve were all different. We are just used to be for ourselves, you know, like standing yeah. up for ourselves and stuff yeah. like this. But in Hollywood, that is a, a sign of weakness. They count you like you can get destroyed from the mob, basically, or the reviewers. We can destroy that guy because there's no studio, no big agency, no big management company. What will protect that guy? If we cancel him or whatever, he will never get a job and we can say we can pat on our shoulders. Ha! another guy down the drain. So it's this kind of, I, I think it's kind of what happened. We know that they felt Boyle is, doesn't have a filter in front of him with various people representing him and protecting him. And that got used. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine what happens then, right? After the fights, I got like 25 different invitations to more fights on festivals <laughs> everywhere, you know? And uh, then I had to say, uh, uh, guys, uh, that was not the point, you know. I, I'm not trying to have a boxing career now. Uh, I still want to make films, and I want that you watch them. Oh, yeah. yeah, I can imagine yeah. that you're just going around the festival circuit. They show you film, and instead of a Q and A, you just do a one on one to see how long you can last. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, but no, no other director. You don't see people like Zack Snyder doing that, or anyone else. So, Uwe's pretty no. much got the market stamped on that one. Yeah. Um. Uh, another curious thing here uh, that I, was revealed to me today. So you did the Vietnam movie Tunnel Rats, which is not actually a bad movie. Uh, I've got to admit, and I like my Vietnam movies. Uh, this has a, a very bizarre fact around it. Now, this movie was released, I believe, in only one theatre in the US, but you still managed to get nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award for it, which is... <laughs> Really? I've never heard anything like that in my life. No, but but you also have to see uh, that that movie got a Raspberry nomination is also the proven fact that they nominated various of my films, like Postal also, uh, without watching the film. Tunnel yeah. Red, it's a good film. It's completely idiotic to nominate it for a Raspberry. Totally idiotic. You know, uh, Postal, I think they didn't understand the film. I don't know what, but I mean, it's also uh, for me. I, I, Alone in the Dark, I understood it. And House of the Dead, I think I got four or five times nominated for films. But, but uh, for Tunnel Rats and Postal, I totally, I totally disagree. Hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I was just kind of flummoxed by that because it's like I don't understand how it could have gotten that nomination for just being on such a short release where it's obviously targeted in my view but following Tunnel Rats you actually have it's almost like a bit of a maturity in your career you enter this new stage you've said goodbye to the video game things obviously apart from uh, Blood Drain 2 and 3 and, and I think you did uh, another In the Name of the King as well with Dolph mm -hmm. um, but you started doing films that were getting better received so Stoic was warmly received Rampage was much better received and then you do a film uh, Darfur 
which was critically acclaimed in a lot of circles and states, you know, this is actually a really yeah. accurate portrayal. So it was almost like we were starting to see this evolving of Uwe Ball into more serious fare of filmmaking and, and stepping away from the video games. So can you explain to us like, what that period was like? Yeah, it, it was this kind of like, I wanted to do, and I know I will have way less money to do this kind of films, but I wanted to do films I'm really uh, uh, interested in. And um, Dafour was, for, I loved Hotel Rwanda, the film. And I felt, so now we have Hotel Rwanda, but Dafour happens now. People getting massacred, nothing happened. Like we're not interfering it. Uh, and uh, I wanted to make the film in a way that the, the world can see what happened there. And there were like 1.8 million people uh, uh, in refugee camps at that point. And we took original refugees from uh, the Sudan and let them play their story, basically, to the, together with the American journalists and interfering, and then they're getting attacked uh, from the Janjaweed. So I was interested in, in this kind of stories that are more based on uh, reality, Tunnel Rats 2. I mean, the, you see it in Platoon a little with the tunnels, but overall, I think the tunnels were the main reason the Americans lost the war. Mm. They couldn't bomb them. They had like they were built perfectly, and they were just hiding out there. And then came out, killed everybody, and went back to the tunnels. And that for years, and that was like undermining the the whole uh, the moral too. That was one of the reasons I think the Vietnam War ultimately stopped was the moral was done and nobody wanted to be there anymore and nobody saw any reason to be there anymore and uh, so and I felt these are the stories I'm personally more interested in so uh, and then I'm a different filmmaker in a way yeah. you know that's also what my crew always said they, they said you're so much more focused on the, on this stuff and prepared as you were on whatever, alone in the dark, you know. So uh, I, I, in a way, disagree. I think I'm always uh, prepared, but um, let's say the fire was not there inside, you know, that you burn for yeah. something. That, that mm. Southern Wall Street, I think it's very important to make a film like this after the, the mortgage crisis and so many people uh, lost their houses, millions of people basically lost their existence and nothing happened after uh, the banks got bailed out the managers stayed rich the world acted last nothing happened but there were people falling through uh, the gutter so and that, that is the, the the things i'm more interested in but and on the other hand when people ask me what were the two films like pick two films that were like your favorite films you you shot on set and that was clearly postal and in the name of the king i had the most fun on these two films to shoot them. And uh, uh, because it was that what you always in a way dreamed of and in the name of the king to do a real big budget film where you have basically whatever you want, like real luxus with hundreds of horses and thousand extras and stuff like this. Uh, and it was just like uh, extremely satisfying to do a film like this where you shoot for almost two months and not only three or four weeks trying to get rush something in. So it was amazing. And Postal was amazing because 
so many little parts were filled with so many actors like Seymour Cassell, whatever. Like there were like every single part, Michael Huddleston from The Big Lebowski, we had so many people playing little parts that because they wanted to be in the film and because it was so funny, you know, to just see them uh, doing it better as it was written. You know, where you, you say, like, day 40, you don't have to be naked. Like, I know when it was, like, completely naked. Then it, yeah. I watched it for the first time this week, and that did actually take me by surprise. I was like, oh, 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 where it's and, that and kind of film, is it? Yes, right? It was like we were sitting there, and, like, uh, you're full frontal naked. I don't think you have to do this, right? So, and it's maybe bad for the rating. And he said, I give a shit. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, <laughs> and I, and I, I felt like we could, we could, of course, later cut it out. But we, I mean, it was clear the film gets, get, will get an R rating. There was no chance to get a PG-13. So we left it in and it got an R rating. So it was okay. I, yeah, I did actually really enjoy that. Um, it, it had it. It felt like uh, the same kind of. I think I said it earlier. The same kind of zany feel as like the uh, the the Zuckers had, or or the scary movie films like uh, my my partner mentioned. Uh, but you can tell that it is something that you did really enjoy doing because there's a lot more polish on it than mm-hmm. uh, some of your other movies, and you can tell that you've taken more time over that film so yes it definitely comes across more yeah and i mean in poster two is uh you have on the one hand this kind of uh social satire with bush bin laden and the taliban and all that stuff but you also have this very simple kind of gangster story going on mm-hmm. and you have so many opportunities to make a parody on on daily things, what people like the the welfare office or whatever, you know, the job interview with the uh, with Lindsay Hollister, and then this kind of like, what is the difference between a duck, right? So this kind of like, <laughs> 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 and, 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 uh, uh, so Zach Zach Ward, the the, the postal dude, he uh, came to the uh, audition at the ca- uh, casting uh, for one of the police officers. What then Ralph Muller played and Chris Spencer, like the black guy and the, the, the Mr. Universal guy, Mr. Mm. Universe guy, basically. So, and, uh, so he played the, the cop and Dan Clark and I, we were sitting there like, that is the postal dude. Because he came late, he was sweaty, he was like not believing he get any part in the film. You know, you had the feeling like... Uh, he is the postal dude, basically, right? So where where this kind of uh, fuck, <laughs> you know, like why I'm late and I don't know my lines, whatever. And I felt like that is the perfect kind of a loser, you know, mm-hmm. what you need, but you need also this energy in. And that, that was perfect that Zach has this kind of inner aggressive energy, but he has also a lot of comedy talent. You know, so and uh, yeah. no, that that was we were sitting there like that is the postal dude. <laughs> yeah. Just before we carry on the question, that that got me, and also the the scene where the the woman who who was behind the counter got hit and then bounced off two separate cars before landing. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely howled at that one. <laughs> yeah, I know that was great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so I say it's funny. You mentioned kind of assault on Wall Street, 
And I know you start working with Dominic Purcell quite a lot. He's, he's become a regular in a bunch of your movies now. But when you look at Assault on Wall Street, and then you look at movies like uh, Rampage, Pres uh, President Down, and then while you've been away, you retired uh, just after Rampage, President Down. Uh, when you kind of look at the events in the world while you have been away, <laughs> and it's like, you sit there thinking, I am living in an Uwe Ball movie. <laughs> You've got capital riots. Yeah. You've got, you yeah. know, the worst presidency in the world. You know what? This is the perfect time for an Uwe Ball comeback because the real world has been much crazier than the movies that he has put out. And now we want to hear what the next stage of Uwe Ball is. And and. <laughs> I know um, you became very vocal against kind of uh, moviegoers in Hollywood, uh, the Marvel movie structure that is out there. Uh, right around the time uh, your Kickstarter campaign didn't work yeah. out how you would hope. And was that just uh, the pressure at the time? Were there genuine feelings? Do you still feel the same way now? No, I mean, that was a spontaneous thing, right? So to say, fuck you or whatever, you know, like this kind of reaction. And, uh, but it was, of course, like growing to that point where I spit it out, basically, right? So yeah. because I felt there's so much uh, fake lying, uh, uh, this kind of passive-aggressive friendliness in Hollywood, you know, everything is great, but then nothing will ever happen for you. So it's this kind of, the thing what you have to learn in LA is they never say no to you. They mm. just go silent sure. because they don't want to say no to something what then turns into a mega hit because then they're getting fired. So they basically never, like in Europe, it's totally normal. You you submit something, you talk, and then, no, I'm not doing it. No, we don't finance it. End of the story, right? So and that is how we all grow up with a no or a yes. But you're not getting that in Hollywood. They're digging around forever and like what you know like and you ask like okay you have my script since five and a half years maybe you should give me an answer you know stuff like this and that made me very mad and th the other thing i think what played into it was that they take so much like meaning in this avenger stuff or whatever you know in all that marvel stuff yeah. and it looks like and i wanted to bring them back down to earth like you're not doing Goodfellas or Taxi Driver or any real important film or Apocalypse Now or whatever. It's it's like fucking comic book or video game based films made for yeah. 300 million, getting another 150 million advertising. Of course, you make two, three, four hundred million dollar box office because they all saw your trailer since seven months straight. You watch TV, yes. your t trailer is coming, you drive by, you see the outdoor advertising, the movie theaters play only your trailers, they don't play trailers for smaller films, what is very bad for independent uh, films, that you don't get the trailering in the movie theaters, right? And then they don't hang up your poster properly if your movie's running, but they have the banners from Avatar left and right around, wrapped over the whole, uh, around the whole uh, Cinemax. Right. So and I think and I was mad about it. This kind and then they acting like they're doing something positive and not only just making money. You know, that all this bullshit about whatever. 
avatar is about the environment of <laughs> no it's not it's like blue people in an aquarium filmed for six years with enormous technical skills and whatever. I'm not against Avatar. I think James Cameron is a total genius, you know, but you cannot put so much meaning on it and act like you make the film about the massacres in Darfur where half a million people are getting hacked into pieces and you show it to the world because you want that they stop the massacre and nobody gives a shit. You know, and then they're standing all on stage and celebrating uh, each other or talking the whole time at the Oscars about be strong, you're a woman, be strong, you're black, be strong, you're Asian or whatever. And you think like uh, you made 50 million bucks last year and you act like yeah. uh, you are the garbage man from the Bronx. You know, that is the thing. It's like it's so fake and completely bullshit, but they but they pull out the ass there and I I call that out. You know that that is also the one one of the things what uh in a way makes me personally uh happy over the years is that I never really cared about what the people like that not the people but the whatever what Hollywood thinks about me. You know, I got the hardcore negative reviews I got the bashing and the stop over ball petition. So if somebody wants to cancel me because I make a racist joke, I would give a complete fucking shit about it. You know, like, I mean, it's ridiculous what's going on on, on this kind of uh, uh, fake uh, narrative, uh, what, I, what I just mentioned with, you know, like the, the, it's, it's just like ridiculous because they want to be, they're making the massive amounts of money. They are not like living under the real world anymore. They all have their bodyguards and drivers and wh whatever, you know, and cooks. And But they're all acting like they're still the nice guy from the, the apartment you, you grew up with or something. You know, I mean, it's, it's just like, I think it's so fake and not believable. And um, yeah, that is why I did that video, you know, to, to just say like, look, I'm... I will never be one of you in, you know, in, in the very end. It's also very, uh, I mean, over, over time, uh, over the years, uh, I did a lot of things. There are like, there's that old say, like, no good deed stays unpunished, mm. you know? So I helped a lot of people and I got like backstabbed or zero respect back for it. Uh, you know, and you feel like, mm, you know, it's it's like I, I should have all the blockades in front of me. But if you write me on Facebook, I answer you. I just learned, you know, that is how I grew up. Like if somebody writes me an email, I don't care who he is or if he's rich or not or whatever. I give a shit. I answer everybody. And uh, I, I think that is kind of like a normal way to... Uh, um, to, to exist and a lot of them they don't do that they only act like this but they're only under themselves uh, living in in the gated communities and then from time to time they shake the hands of some friends at, at the premiere and acting like uh, I'm one of uh, one, one of you now, yeah. it's a totally different subject matter you know but uh, I, I think people are getting totally affected by the by that kind of uh, uh, system, you know, James Gunn, he was on set on uh, uh, Slither, 
in Vancouver and he was a lot of times like I met him and he said Tuesday's hot dog day and and stuff like this you know so he was totally a normal younger filmmaker whatever you know but and and uh, when they fired him from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because of like the old tweets or whatever he did uh, you know uh, I basically sent him an email and said like he should not give a shit about it, you know, so like, uh, uh, go over it. Uh, but he didn't even answer me because at that time he was already kind of a superstar in his mind. And now he's the big Marvel chef or whatever, like, uh, is it the Marvel or yeah. yeah I know, DC, yeah. DC, right. So, and that is the thing. So, but, but I think that other than the people, they, where the, where the real, um, the real personality comes out with power and money, hmm. you know? So, uh, so I don't know. I, did, I never talked to him again after, after the Vancouver stuff. Maybe he's still a great guy. Uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, but, uh, if somebody uh, emails me, I know from 20 years ago, I still email him back. <laughs> well, well, just, uh, just touching very, very briefly on this. You did mention about, um, uh, about the way that the world has changed and how certain things are lauded more than others. Your movies have some, shall we say, some quite questionable content in terms of violence and uh, humour and uh, sexual explicitness. How do you feel that a lot of those movies would survive the current trend of wokeness and the, and the, and correctness and cancel culture, which is sweeping the globe at the moment. That depends on the viewer, <laughs> you know? Mm. So, uh, when, uh, I think rampage, for example, if you see there's one long movie, if you see all three movies basically in a row is, uh, very accurate, as you said about the political situation now, and it's also not in a political, it's not left or right. It's basically this kind of uh, fact-driven. You know, mm. when uh, yeah. Brandon Thatcher, Bill Williamson, there, he, he also gives Obama shit because Obama uh, killed more people with drones as any president uh, before him, as, as an example. But of course, he gives also uh, Bush the, uh, for for the Iraq for the second Iraq war that it was total bullshit uh, to to basically kill Saddam Hussein because of September 11th. I mean there were enough reasons I think to kill Saddam Hussein, for, but not for September 11th. He definitely had nothing to do with it, you know. And Iraq never had a nuclear bomb as may, maybe now Iran soon will have. So stuff like this and um, but I, but I. I don't see besides Postal any film of myself what is uh, so like also explicit for, for I don't have a lot of sex in my films actually I do more male driven stories in, in a way and I don't have a lot of sex scenes in my films in Heart of America was a rape uh, but I don't know Besides postal, I mean, postal is a lot of sexual content uh, <laughs> in a way, but I didn't make a sex film or, or something like this, or, uh, you know, but look, I, I don't know. I, I still think we cannot, um, we just have to tell entertaining stories 
a film can never be boring and what the content is the audience decides i think all genres should be allowed all genres should get done and i think also if somebody feels offended by a comedy for example then okay don't watch it but not like yeah. try to cancel everybody who ever tries to make a joke what offends you that is ridiculous no you that's know? it's a good point because at the end of the day it is a choice to be offended and that's what yeah. a lot of people don't realize is they choose to be offended over something. You know, yeah. there are a lot of movies throughout history dating back to like the 1920s, right? Mm. Uh, that were pushing the envelope of taste. Right? Yes. You, you can look at movies like Blazing Saddles today uh, and other films that were made all around that. You know, there is an argument to ha be had for every single film before council culture came along, mm. you will find something in it. Your choice is just not reacting to it. But yeah, or look like like there like was that whole Twitter thing about Tropic Thunder this week because <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. plays the black guy, right? And everybody's losing their shit, and you think like, who gives a shit? You know, and that was kind of the point of the movie. If Robert Downey Jr. plays the black guy, they laugh about it. You know, that is also a thing that a lot of times this kind of Twitter police vote culture people, they are not the people that got offended or, you know, like because the actually the race or the religion who got offended gives a shit about it. But but they policing for them, they basically acting like they, they need to uh, help them because there was somebody making a joke about a gay guy about a, a, a whatever transvestite about about a black person you know so and the ultimate offended group or whatever doesn't react to it because they don't care but then other people reacting for them and try to cancel the writer the comedian the author and uh that is very bad. I was in New York one evening in a comedy club, in a stand-up co comedy club, and it was very bad. It was too vogue. It was too safe. It was just boring. I was sitting there like, what is this? And because I, I remember like 15, 16 years ago when I was more in Los Angeles uh, from time to time, I always went to the comedy store or comedy club. Uh, there on, on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard, like in Hollywood, right? So, and... Uh, I had a blast because they were all completely insulting the audience the whole time. <laughs> you know, like so the, it was the, with hecklers and everything. There was a lot of turmoil in the in that comedy club, and I loved it. You know, because I don't want to be in my cozy zone if I if I if I have stand, if I want to watch a stand up comedian, I want that he forces me into like a zone where. Even I feel insulted or something, you know, because then it's funny. When yeah, it hurts, yeah. it starts to get funny, you know. And and I and I feel like that is what comedy should do. And uh, uh, there are still uh, with like uh, uh, now Chris Rock or Chappelle, uh, Bill Burr. There are some good stand ups yeah. still, you know. But they're also getting now too like at least Chappelle. I think he's more like a politic now yeah. he, he you know he's he's doing it all about george floyd and whatever but he's not really doing the jokes anymore what made him famous and i i like a comedy 
who is kind of uh, under the belt and stuff like this, yeah. you know. <laughs> I only thought about like, like said Benny Hill would never exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he, he tried the whole time to grab woman's tits, like the whole <laughs> <laughs> like this in the whole show. And that was BBC prime time television. Yep. I remember watching <laughs> yep. that growing up, yeah. Very yeah. true. But in kind of uh, rounding this out now, obviously, in going into retirement, you got into the restaurant business with Bauhaus, uh, which I believe was in Vancouver. And uh, funnily enough, these were the best reviews you ever got was for your restaurant. I know. I, know. <laughs> I should stick with it. And, uh, no, the, the restaurant got good reviews. The food was good. The restaurant business is horrible. It's still horrible. You know, like you have so much trouble with waiters and bartenders and cooks and everything. So that it was uh, more stress as making films um, because it's a never ending film. Yeah. You know, you're like six days a week open and you're like, oh my God, what happened today? And, uh, you know, stuff like this. It's... Uh, it was a tough time, four and a half years. We had the restaurant. Beginning of COVID, we closed. And then we moved from Vancouver uh, to Germany because I felt also I want to get back to films. Uh, and it was kind of the right moment to uh, wrap it up. And I'm happy that I didn't wrap it up one and a half years after COVID started. We basically, the first yeah. week that I, when, I, when the shutdown happened of the restaurant, of, of all the restaurants in Vancouver, uh, we decided we were we, we, we're stopping it. Oh, and now here you are. You're back where you belong, Uwe. You're back behind the camera. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing uh, First Shift and we're looking forward to seeing the, the next generation of, of Uwe Ball uh, and kind of how you've matured as a filmmaker and what the time away has really done for you kind of mentally and in more preparation for film as well. I, I will say the one thing, there are not, and I think you mentioned it the other day as well when we, we spoke, with a lot of the movies that are coming out today, you have no idea who the directors of those movies are. Yeah. But when you say it's an Uwe Ball film, you know it's an Uwe Ball film. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is no, good. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, if you want to talk to us about anything that you've seen in this episode, then you can just click on the, uh, the links below. Uh, you know the addresses by now. It's facebook.com forward slash Poddywood, or you can hit us on Twitter at Poddywood. You can hit the r slash Poddywood subreddit. You can get us on LinkedIn. You can get us on Fiverr. Please, we need the money. Uh, or you can <laughs> just, I, I don't know, invest in Marconi's new telephony device. I don't know. Something. <laughs> you can get in contact with us. Uh, and you can even get Patreon. Yes, you can. If you join us on the Patreon page, then uh, <laughs> you can get the audio versions of these episodes a few days earlier than the video one. I have a podcast to Uberball Raw. So if somebody wants to hear a little podcast from me and Gary Otto, friend of mine, we do that also for a few years. It's on Spotify, I think. Well, with that in mind, it is a big thank you once more to Uwe Ball. Thank you. Thanks so much. It is a goodbye from me. And I guess I've got to go as well. But it's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Bye.